0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida on March 11th, 2006. The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter 35 some village Hampton that with dauntless breast the village tyrant of his fields withstood, some mute, inglorious Milton here may rest, some Cromwell, guiltless of his country's blood. GREY It was thirty-three years after the interview which we have just related that an American army was once more arrayed against the troops of England but the scene was transferred from Hudson's banks to those of the Niagara. The body of Washington had long lay moldering in the tomb, but as time was fast obliterating the slight impressions of political enmity or personal envy, his name was hourly receiving new luster, and his worth and integrity each moment became more visible, not only to his countrymen, but to the world. He was already the acknowledged hero of an age of reason and truth, and many a young heart among those who formed the pride of our army in 1814 was glowing with the recollection of the one great name of America, and inwardly beating with the sanguine expectation of emulating in some degree its renown. In no one were these virtuous hopes more vivid than in the bosom of a young officer who stood on the table rock contemplating the great cataract on the evening of the 25th of July of that bloody year. The person of this youth was tall and finely moulded, indicating a just proportion between strength and activity. His deep black eyes were of a searching and dazzling brightness. At times, as they gazed upon the flood of waters that rushed tumultuously at his feet, There was a stern and daring look that flashed from them, which denoted the ardor of an enthusiast. But this proud expression was softened by the lines of a mouth around which there played a suppressed archness, that partook of feminine beauty. His hair shone in the setting sun like ringlets of gold, as the air from the falls gently moved the rich curls from a forehead whose whiteness showed that exposure and heat alone had given their darker hue to a face glowing with health. There was another officer standing by the side of this favoured youth, and both seemed, by the interest they betrayed, to be gazing for the first time at the wonder of the western world. A profound silence was observed by each, until the companion of the officer that we have described suddenly startled, and, pointing eagerly with his sword into an abyss beneath, exclaimed, See! Wharton! There is a man crossing the very eddies of the cataract, and in a skiff no bigger than an eggshell. He has a knapsack, and is probably a soldier, returned the other. Let us meet him, at the ladder-mason, and learn his tidings. Some time was expended in reaching the spot where the adventurer was intercepted, Contrary to the expectations of the young soldiers, he proved to be a man far advanced in life, and evidently no follower of the camp. His years might be seventy, and they were indicated more by the thin hairs of silver that lay scattered over his wrinkled brow than by any apparent failure of his system. His frame was meagre and bent, but it was the attitude of habit, for the sinews were strung with the toil of half a century." His dress was mean and manifested the economy of its owner by the number and nature of its repairs. On his back was a scantily furnished pack that led to the mistake of his profession. A few words of salutation and, on the part of the young men, of surprise that one so aged should venture so near the whirlpools of that cataract were exchanged. When the old man inquired with a voice that began to manifest the tremor of age, the news from the contending armies. "'We whipped the redkits here the other day, among the grass on the Chippewa plains,' said the one called Mason. "'Since when we've been playing hide-and-go-seek with the ships, but now we are marching back from where we started, shaking our heads and as surly as the devil.' "'Perhaps if you have a son among the soldiers,' said his companion, with a milder demeanour and an air of kindness, "'if so, tell me his name and regiment, and I will take you to him.' The old man shook his head. Passing his hand over his silver locks with an air of meek resignation, he answered, "'No, I am alone in the world.' "'You should have added—' "'Captain Dunwoody,' cried his careless comrade, "'if you could find either, for nearly half our army has marched down the road "'and may be at this time under the walls of Fort George, "'for anything that we know to the contrary.' "'The old man stopped suddenly and looked earnestly from one of his companions to the other. "'The action being observed by the soldiers, they paused also. "'Did I hear right?' the stranger uttered raising his hand to screen his eyes from the rays of the setting sun. "'What did he call you?' "'My name is Wharton Dunwoody,' replied the youth, smiling. The stranger motioned silently for him to remove his hat, which the youth did accordingly, and his fair hair blew aside like curls of silk and opened the whole of his ingenious countenance to the inspection of the other.' "'Tis like our native land!' exclaimed the old man with vehemence. "'Improving with time! God has blessed both!' "'Why do you stare thus, Lieutenant Mason?' cried Captain Dunwoody, laughing a little. "'You show more astonishment than when you saw the Falls. "'Oh, the Falls! They are a thing to be looked at on a moonshiny night by your Aunt Sarah "'and that gay old bachelor Colonel Singleton.' "'but a fellow like myself never shows surprise unless it may be at such a touch as this.' "'The extraordinary vehemence of the stranger's manner had passed away as suddenly as it was exhibited. "'But he listened to this speech with deep interest, while Dunwoody replied a little gravely, "'Come, come, Tom. No jokes about my good aunt, I beg. She is kindness itself. "'And I have heard it whispered that her youth was not altogether happy.' "'Why, as to rumor, said Mason, "'there goes one in Acomac that Colonel Singleton offers himself to her regularly every Valentine's Day. "'And there are some who add that your old great-aunt helps his suit.' Aunt Jeanette,' said Dunwoodie, laughing, "'dear good soul, she thinks but little of marriage in any shape, I believe, since the death of Dr. Sitgraves.' There were some whispers of a courtship between them formerly, but it ended in nothing but civilities, and I suspect that the whole story arises from the intimacy of Colonel Singleton and my father. You know, they were comrades in the horse, as indeed was your own father. "'I know all that, of course.' But you must not tell me that the particular prim bachelor goes so often to General Dunwoody's plantation merely for the sake of talking old soldier with your father the last time I was there, that yellow sharp-nosed housekeeper of your mother's took me into the pantry and said that the colonel was no despisable match as she called it, and how the sale of his plantation in Georgia had brought him. oh Lord, I don't know how much quite likely returned the captain. Katie Haynes is no bad calculator. They had stopped during this conversation in uncertainty whether their new companion was to be left or not. The old man listened to each word as it was uttered with the most intense interest, but toward the conclusion of the dialogue the earnest attention of his countenance changed to a kind of inward smile. He shook his head, and, passing his hands over his forehead, SEEMED TO BE THINKING OF OTHER TIMES. MASON PAID BUT LITTLE ATTENTION TO THE EXPRESSION OF HIS FEATURES, AND CONTINUED, TO ME SHE IS SELFISHNESS EMBODIED. HER SELFISHNESS DOES BUT LITTLE HARM, RETURNED DUNWOODY. ONE OF HER GREATEST DIFFICULTIES IS HER AVERSION TO THE BLACKS. SHE SAYS THAT SHE NEVER SAW BUT ONE THAT SHE LIKED. AND WHO WAS HE? His name was Caesar. He was a house-servant of my late grandfather, Wharton. You don't remember him. I believe he died in the same year with his master, while we were children. Katie yearly sings his requiem, and upon my word I believe he deserved it. I have heard something of his helping my English uncle, as we call General Wharton, in some difficulty that occurred in the old war. My mother always speaks of him with great affection. Both Caesar and Katie came to Virginia with my mother when she married. "'My mother was an angel!' interrupted the old man, in a voice that startled the young soldiers by its abruptness and energy. "'Did you know her?' cried the son, with a glow of pleasure in his cheek. The reply of the stranger was interrupted by sudden and heavy explosions of artillery, which were immediately followed by continued volleys of small arms, and in a few minutes the air was filled with the tumult of a warm and well-contested battle. The two soldiers hastened with precipitation upon the camp, accompanied by their new acquaintance. The excitement and anxiety created by the approaching fight prevented a continuance of the conversation, and the three held their way to the army, making occasional conjectures on the cause of the fire and the probability of a general engagement. During their short and hurried walk Captain Dunwoody, however, threw several friendly glances at the old man, who moved over the ground with astonishing energy for his years, for the heart of the youth was warmed by a eulogism on a mother that he adored. In a short time they joined the regiment to which the officers belonged, when the captain, squeezing the stranger's hand, earnestly begged that he would make inquiries after him on the following morning, and that he might see him in his own tent. Here they separated. Everything in the American camp announced an approaching struggle. At a distance of a few miles the sound of cannon and musketry was heard above the roar of the cataract. The troops were soon in motion, and a movement made to support the division of the army which was already engaged. Night had set in before the reserve and irregulars reached the foot of Lundy's Lane, a road that diverged from the river and crossed a conical eminence at no great distance from the Niagara Highway. The summit of this hill was crowned with the cannon of the British, and in the flat beneath was the remnant of Scott's gallant brigade, which for a long time had held an unequal contest with distinguished bravery. A new line was interposed, and one column of the Americans directed to charge up the hill parallel to the road. This column took the English in flank, and, bayoneting their artillerists, gained possession of the cannon. They were immediately joined by their comrades, and the enemy was swept from the hill. But large reinforcements were joining the English general momentarily, and their troops were too brave to rest easy under the defeat. Repeated and bloody charges were made to recover the guns, but in all they were repulsed with slaughter. During the last of these struggles the ardor of the youthful captain whom we have mentioned urged him to lead his men some distance in advance to scatter a daring party of the enemy. He succeeded but in returning to the line missed his lieutenant from the station that he ought to have occupied. Soon after this repulse, which was the last, orders were given to the shattered troops to return to the camp. The British were nowhere to be seen, and preparations were made to take in such of the wounded as could be moved. At this moment Wharton Dunwoody, impelled by affection for his friend, seized a lighted fusee, and taking two of his men went himself in quest of his body where he was supposed to have fallen mason was found on the side of the hill seated with great composure but unable to walk from a fractured leg dunwoodie saw and flew to the side of his comrade saying ah dear tom i knew i should find you the nearest man to the enemy softly softly handle me tenderly replied the lieutenant no, there is a brave fellow still nearer than myself, and who he can be I know not. He rushed out of our smoke, near my platoon, to make a prisoner or some such thing, but poor fellow, he never came back. There he lies just over the hillock. I have spoken to him several times, but I fancy he is past answering. Dunwoody went to the spot, and to his great astonishment beheld the aged stranger. "'It is the old man who knew my mother,' cried the youth. "'For her sake he shall have an honourable burial. Lift him, let him be carried in. His bones shall rest on native soil.' The men approached to obey. He was lying on his back, with his face exposed to the glaring light of the fusee. His eyes were closed as if in slumber. His lips, sunken with years, were slightly moved from their natural position, but it seemed more like a smile than a convulsion which had caused the change. A soldier's musket lay near him, his hands were pressed upon his breast and one of them contained a substance that glittered like silver. Dunwoody stooped and removed the limbs, perceived the place where the bullet had found passage to his heart. The subject of his last care was a tin box, through which the fatal lead had gone, and the dying moments of the old man must have been passed in drawing it from his bosom. Dunwoody opened it, and found a paper in which, to his astonishment, he read the following. Circumstances of political importance which involve the lives and fortunes of many have hitherto kept secret what this paper now reveals. Harvey Birch has for years been a faithful and unrequited servant of his country, Though man does not, may God reward him for his conduct. Signed, George Washington It was the spy of the neutral ground, who had died as he had lived, devoted to his country, and a martyr to her liberties. So ends Chapter 35, and this concludes The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper.